I mean, especially if you're on the store, it should be fine. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, really Anything shouldn't even need, to, if you use this to advance, you could even push this in, but it's up to you. And I guess we could do this. Yeah, I was going to say. You want to do that? That's what we did last. Yeah, that's good. So stay at the podium for the microphone. Use a mouse cursor if you need to point at something. Yes. Okay. Yeah, Good morning, everyone. It's uh, 8.04 Apple time, time to begin our pediatric run rounds. Uh, welcome. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to our residents that always sit very dutifully in the back. And uh, uh, John, I can see you, so pay attention. You can't leave early, okay? Um, and fill out your evaluation. Uh, I'm going to be watching for you. Uh, it's great to have uh, everyone here. It's an absolutely beautiful fall morning, and this is, this is when you, you give a blessing that we live in, in New England. And, uh, of course, we should have taken the day off to go apple picking, but, you, but you're here. So thank you for being here. This morning we have a, a fantastic uh, panel that will talk about the variations in sexual development. I think you'll enjoy it. You'll learn a lot, a topic that is often controversial, but I think we have great expertise here at Connecticut Children's. Um, and uh, I, I will ask uh, Dr. Germain Lee to introduce the speakers. And, but uh, on your screen, what you can see here is uh, I was asked to remind you to, uh, to look at the various forms and ways that you can actually log in through your mobile app, uh, through the desktop access, um, and how you can go back and actually look at what we call enduring materials. So please 
take a look at this. Uh, uh, Liz and, and the group in uh, medical education has done a tremendous job at, at making sure that we can access um, all the podcasts and, uh, and information online, and, uh, and, and it's really uh, changed the way we, we do things. And you can log in anytime. We do prefer to see you here. It's good to say hello to everyone and share a cup of coffee. I think that's part of engagement and socializing. But, uh, but if somehow you can't make it here, uh, please do log in through the various methodologies. Um, the, this morning, uh, the, the grand rounds will be introduced by Dr. Jermaine Lee. Dr. Jermaine Lee uh, is our Chief of Pediatric Endocrinology, and, uh, and Emily is someone that um, many of you have uh, come into contact with, uh, and I could spend you know, three hours introducing her, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to share sort of a fun fact about her, and, and, and that is that uh, uh, in December, she, she'll be down in Cape Canaveral, and, and the reason is, no, she's not going out to space. Uh, but uh, uh, Sajin, Dr. Sajin Lee and, and her have been chosen by NASA uh, to uh, uh, lead a, a project uh, looking at uh, both uh, uh, bone and muscle and the effects of uh, space and bone and muscle. And they're going to be sending their mice uh, up into space. And so this is the Mighty Mouse Project. And it's actually true. I think that is what it's called. Uh, and uh, so we have... Uh, I've asked Emily to name one of the mice after me, but she said that uh, Dr. Demerci and all the endocrinologists already have uh, dibs for, for their mice. And so Doug McGilpin, we can't name one after you either. My, my apologies for that, but uh, it is true. She, is, she will be in, uh, at Cape, in Cape Canaveral, I don't know exactly the date, uh, but they have an army of mice that will be going up into space and they'll come back alive. Um, they'll tell us, you know, about, hopefully come back alive, that's what she's saying, but um, and you'll hear about this in the news. So it's really amazing. This is the first time that a Connecticut Children's faculty member will be sending anything of Connecticut Children's up into space, and so we're really, really happy about that. I'm not sure they're going to be wearing the little logos, you know, the little star somewhere, but uh, so, so Emily is just fabulous to, to work with you, and uh, please come up and introduce the speakers. Well, it's uh, really a pleasure to introduce this Grand Rounds. Um, one of the many strengths of Connecticut Children's is providing comprehensive, compassionate, multidisciplinary care. And the Clinic for Variations in Sexual Development is really an excellent example. Co-medical directors Priya Fawani, a pediatric endocrinologist, and Ann Dudley, pediatric urologist, uh, run this clinic. Bonnie Scranton, a licensed social worker with specialized training, in this specific field provides the much needed emotional support to the families. Priya completed a combined pediatrics internal medicine residency at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey and has been at Connecticut Children's since 2003, first as a fellow, then as an attending. Along with practicing general pediatric endocrinology and adult endocrinology, her areas of interest include transitioning pediatric endocrine patients to the adult world, along with a focus on PCOS, type 2 diabetes, providing endocrine care in the weight management program, and directing our gender program. Ann Dudley completed her urology residency at the University of Pittsburgh and her urology fellowship at Vanderbilt Children's. She joined the Division of Urology at Connecticut Children's in 2017, and her interests include variations in sexual development, spina bifida and neurogenic bladder, and hypospadias. And finally, Bonnie Scranton, a licensed clinical social worker in private practice with adolescents and adults, is um, very specialized in sexual health education, sex therapy, and couples therapy. She completed the University of Michigan Sexual Health Certificate Program. 
Bonnie has served on this team for the past five years and has served on the board of directors of the AIS DSD support group, which is a national peer support group for individuals and families who are affected by a range of intersex conditions and variations of sexual development. Please join me in welcoming this really incredible team. There we go. Okay. So uh, thank you for that introduction. Yep. So I'm Priya and I, let's just dive into it. Advance. Okay. Not advancing. <coughs> Technical difficulties. Oh, failed to do that. So. Uh -huh. Steve. Oh. Keep the coffee down here. So our topic today is variations in sex development. Our objections are to go through how we classify the various uh, variations of sex development. Bonnie's going to follow me off my stool. Bonnie's going to follow me um, with how we give patients that diagnosis. Um, and parental support. And Anne's going to follow us with surgical and medical management. So. Not advancing. Okay. Mouse it is. Okay. So patients with variations in sex development often had surgeries without full, open, and age-appropriate ongoing disclosure. This was not that long ago, and in some places it is still happening. While the medical community has been improving its understanding on these issues, it has a long way to go. Terms have evolved, certainly. Used to be hermaphrodites. Clearly, all of us would say that's unacceptable. And then disorders of sex development, that was the terminology in the 2006 consensus guidelines. And more recently, we've been using the terms differences or variations in sex development, though the classification system, which I'll go into, is still the same as 2006. In terms of self-identification, some, but not all, Patients who have these conditions consider themselves to be intersex. So if you've heard of LGBTQIA, the I therein refers to intersex. So what about our clinic here at Connecticut Children's Medical Center? It's a monthly multidisciplinary clinic. We have pediatric endocrinology, mental health support, pediatric urology, and we certainly also consult with other fields like genetics and adolescent gynecology. Who do we see? So our patients. In infancy, as you would expect by definition, it's infants born with genitalia that are not considered typical for male or female. So it might be obvious genital atypia. It might be apparent female genitalia. I say the apparent with a capital A there, with an enlarged clitoris, posterior labial fusion, perhaps an inguinal or labial mass. 
apparent male genitalia, which might be bilateral undescended testes, micropenis, isolated perineal hypospadias, or it might be mild hypospadias with undescended testes. It's important to note that until you have your investigations back and further determination is made, you may wish to describe these structures as a clitorophallic structure and labioscrotal folds before you label things. Might be an infant uh, with a family history of a variation in sex development. Might be that you had a prenatal karyotype and that doesn't match with what you're seeing on physical exam now that the baby is born. But we also see older patients. These could be older children, adolescents, young adults, might be a previously unrecognized genital atypia, might be an inguinal hernia in a girl, delayed or incomplete puberty, virilization in a girl, primary amenorrhea, breast development in a boy, gross and cyclical hematuria in a boy. So these referrals might come within our own divisions, um, as you might imagine, might be virilization in a girl that was sent to endocrinology, workup was done and found to be more of a complicated variation in sex development, or urology might see a boy with hematuria and then it's discovered it's more cyclical in nature and that leads to further evaluation and workup, but also divisions, other divisions in our institution, of course, healthcare providers from nursery referrals, and of course, community pediatrics. So all over Connecticut. We've also had referrals from Massachusetts and Rhode Island. What happens at a visit? So perhaps I'm going into the nursery. What might I say? I typically say, congratulations, you have an adorable baby, which 99% of the time is true. And I'll say, my name is Dr. Fulwani. I'm an endocrinologist. So I explain that means I'm a hormone doctor. Um, your pediatrician has asked me to meet with you. They were concerned about the child's genitals. Do you have any concerns? I like to ask them about their concerns before diving further. Do a full history. Like I always tell learners who are with me, it's not about not asking all the questions, it's about asking, but with sensitivity. You do need to ask about maternal exposure, including the androgens. You do need to ask about, is there any possibility that you and the biological father might be running away? So ask all the questions you need, do it with sensitivity. I like to emphasize variations at this point. So I like to say we're often taught that XX genes make a girl and XY genes make a boy, but there are more variations. We are taught that we either have all girl parts like ovaries and eggs and uterus and vagina, but there are variations. Or we're taught we have all boy parts, like testicles. Reminder here, make sure that you're speaking in lay terms when needed, or your balls, a penis. But sometimes variations do occur both on the inside and the outside. And I like to remind uh, parents, families, that we all start undifferentiated. So while I don't have this beautiful picture with me, often when I'm on call, it's usually a chicken scratch on the back of mom's breakfast menu, but I like to draw out that we all start undifferentiated and then we further down differentiate so that there are many steps at which variations may occur. And I also like to emphasize that these variations don't perfectly predict the gender your child will feel they belong to or who they'll be attracted to. Here's a free little Google resource. It's called the Genderbred Person, which sometimes I found can be useful for families to understand, as well as sometimes for teenagers to explain to their own parents, 
why things like gender identity, it's different from gender expression, it's different from your biology, and finally different than whom you're attracted to. I'd like to do the physical exam wherever possible with the parents present. I like to show them what I'm seeing. This is not about concealing things. And so I'll say, when I examine your baby, I see the urine hole, I see the stool hole, I see the structure here, might be a clitoris or a penis. I feel, this is what I feel on exam. My fingers are, are not as sensitive as my colleague, Dr. Dudley's, but I'll say, this is what I think I feel here. And then I'll say, let's get an ultrasound to see all these parts a little bit better. And I'm going to recommend some blood work to see those chromosomes, those genes that we talked about, as well as some hormones. Orders in the nursery. So when I've given this talk um, for the nursery, we go through what in order is priority. So blood is a precious commodity in the nursery as we know. And so it's very important to order the most important to least important labs that we can. Um, and that's gonna also determine our further discussion with the family. So typically things like your electrolytes and your cortisol, um, your ultrasound will come back in sooner than some of the adrenal hormones or your carrier type and your fish for SRY. I should mention the newborn screen for CAH is another useful prelim test that you can ask for that might speed things up as well. So the ultrasound of the pelvis, in my experience, what you get from radiology is what you discuss with the radiologist, right? So you wanna make sure that you're mentioning why you're ordering the test and that you'd like to visualize inguinal areas and labioscrotal folds, consider the abdomen. And remember, karyotype is a full ML in a green top. Um, so yes, that's definitely stuff you wanna send. And not advancing. Let's try the arrow. Okay. Yes. Um, so if you are known XX or the carrier type is pending, which is generally the case, right? So what do you want to make sure you send? Most certainly the cortisol, the electrolytes, the CH panel. Depending on your institution, you can get some of this stuff quick. If you do it by quest, it can take up to seven days sometimes. And that CH panel does include the cortisol. But I will say, if your baby's unstable, the vitals are unstable, the electrolytes certainly match with salt wasting. This is not a child that you wanna to wait to treat. You can go ahead and treat while you're awaiting labs. And let's say things come back and they don't fit with salt wasting CH, you could always stop the treatment. If it's known XY, you're thinking in your mind, it's under realization of an XY individual. So what do you wanna send? Testosterone, LH, dihydrotestosterone. You're thinking of the pathway that leads all the steps into the production and action of your testosterone, but also cortisol, because there are some uh, rare adrenal forms that have been implicated. And if you have a midline defect particularly, but perhaps even otherwise, you might wanna think this is a panhypopit situation. So you've sent the cortisol, you've sent the testosterone, you may wanna send a free T4 as well. So one myth is that programs ask the family to hold off on gender assignment. This is actually untrue. In fact, the guidelines recommend that families go ahead and provide these children with a gender assignment. Usually we're familiar with male or female. Um, sometimes parents might choose a gender neutral name. Um, there is a non-binary option coming up on the birth certificate in Connecticut, which some families may choose. Um, and we give them the medical information as it comes in. The final decision is always 
that of the parent. What about at the clinic? Same family comes in, uh, maybe later as a follow-up, or this might be their initial visit in the clinic. So an explanation of all our roles, why they were referred, what's going to happen next, full history, physical, blood work, imaging. Similar conversation as I had perhaps in the nursery, involving also now the results of further incoming testing. We involve genetics as needed and all that we know at that point with the diagnosis. So long-term outcomes, these are important discussions and very importantly evolving. I might have a certain discussion this year, which might be different from next year's visit in terms of what I know now. So we'll have conversations about what we know about puberty for this particular diagnosis. What about cancer risks? Um, all forms of medical and surgical options, including the option of observation. Benefits and risks to each intervention, not just now, but also what would happen if we did these same interventions later in life, in childhood versus waiting till adulthood. So at each time point as well. We support families, we'll hear more about that from Bonnie, the patient, the community. We also try to get asked that as soon as the child is able to participate and understand in this conversation and consent. Some examples in my particular field might be life-saving measures, salt, mineralocorticoids, glucocorticoids for salt-wasting forms of congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Might be simple discussions, but not that simple sometimes on adequate calcium and vitamin D for bone preservation in hypogonadal states. Risks and benefits of steroids, particularly when there might be more of an optional course like late onset CH options of medications for gynecomastia in someone with an affirmed male gender who doesn't desire it, and initiation of testosterone or estrogen towards an affirmed gender. Classification, as I alluded to earlier, so the 2006 consensus guidelines, we don't like the term disorders of sex development, but they had some useful classification tables that we still use. I'm gonna expand on that in the next few slides. So sex chromosome differences in sex development might be 45X, 47XXY combinations, 45X, 46XY, 46XX, 46XY. So as I said, there are variations on the old paradigm of everyone begin belonging in the XX or XY groups. And what about 46XY DSDs, differences in sex development. It could be complete gonadal dysgenesis, partial forms of gonadal dysgenesis, gonadal regression, so something like um, testicular vanishing syndrome, uh, what we used to call, ovotesticular variations, combinations, and it could be a disorder in the actual synthesis of testosterone, so a biosynthesis defect anywhere along that pathway, or more so on the receptor level on the action point. Could be an LH receptor defect. And finally, disorders of anti-malarian hormone and those receptors and other forms. For 46XX variations, it could be ovotesticular. It could be that you are XX, but SRY positive. Or XX, SRY negative, but you have a duplication of SOX9. So as you can see, a complicated array of genes that are possible. I didn't have that slide here, but at that consensus guideline, there were already 30 different genes identified um, that could have variations. Androgen excess, this is what we're most familiar with because statistically 21 hydroxylase deficiency is more common than the rest. 
but it could be other variations, 11-hydroxylase deficiency, maternal um, exogenous androgen exposure, or maternal luteoma that produced a lot of androgen, and other forms as well. So I'll now hand it over to Bonnie. Just the mouse. So you can see how easy this is to explain to families. <laughs> Piece of cake. Um, so I just first want to um, thank Dr. Karen Rubin, where is she? Single-handedly responsible for my presence on this team. So I'm very grateful for your advocacy early on. Um, I think we were doing a trial year and five years later, I'm still here. So. Um, I just also wanted to say real quickly, I'm, you know, I feel like doing a talk like this is sort of bringing a universe of information and trying to fit it on the head of a pen. So um, I probably always have too much information. So I'm going to zip through some of the slides. Um, and I'm more than happy to answer questions at any point. Um, so as Priya mentioned, you know, these are really complicated conditions. And um, my role um, really is to try to support parents and do some sort of translate, translation um, sometimes between the very kind of complicated and actually medically fascinating stuff that Priya just put up, um, that as physicians, you could really, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you could see yourselves really falling into this um, and, and really becoming interested in, you know, what's the, what's the etiology here? What's going on with this child and why? Um, what parents hear is more akin to that Charlie Brown teacher voice, you know, the sort of they're not hearing any of it. So what I want to try to do is just give you a really um, kind of overarching frame for what you can expect uh, when, when you are speaking with a family or a teenager, for that matter, if there's somebody who's being diagnosed in adolescence. Um, so as you all know, um, you know, the more complicated a condition is, sort of the more complicated the care needs to be. Um, and we have this pretty well um, established with lots and lots of different medical conditions. So um, the, the thing with um, variations in sex development is that <clears throat> there's really a lack of familiarity. I mean, both in the lay community and even in the medical establishment and, you know, sort of awareness of these conditions is getting more and more um, and people are becoming more and more familiar, but still, um, when you're talking with a family, chances are really, really high, unless they already have a child who's been diagnosed with one of these intersex conditions, that um, people just don't know about this. So, so you know, you have your initial sort of um, crisis of, you know, my baby or my child is not okay in some major way. Um, even though what we know is that aside from salt-wasting CAH, none of these conditions are really medically emergent. They're not, they're not emergencies. Um, but it's an emergency when it's your child and you don't know who that child is. Um, so there's really no, um, most people's understanding of this is the beginning of it is when their own child is diagnosed. Um, so there's really sort of this crisis of, you know, who's our baby? Um, who is this person? We had this, you know, we were even now with, you know, prenatal testing, we were expecting this and we got this and then, or we were expecting, you know, we didn't want to know and now we still don't know. So there's this crisis of, of really um, bonding with that child. Um, so there's also not an understanding really in our world yet, even though the gender bred person is trying to really get this word out that um, sex and gender are non-binary. 
Um, and so when, when parents aren't able to get, you know, boy or girl, if you think about it, you know, especially now gender reveal parties, and that's the first question that anyone asks you when you share the fact that you're expecting a baby, like, oh, are you having a boy or a girl? And I, of course, get a huge chuckle out of this now all the time. Um, but, we, you know, you just don't know. Um, families want to know, you know, who can we tell? Um, it's very isolating because the idea of sharing that you're not sure if your baby is a boy or a girl, um, you know, it becomes a very slippery slope in terms of secrecy, privacy. How do we, who do we tell? Who are we going to have in our inner circle? Um, and especially if um, that's at birth. So sometimes when you have a child who's diagnosed in adolescence, it's still a crisis. Um, but the family has had, you know, 13, 14 years with that, with that child who's established their own identity generally. And um, so it's not as difficult, but it's still, it's still difficult. So this idea of identity um, really is a social emergency, much more than a medical one. So that's the reason why in um, 2006 with the Chicago consensus statement, um, the standard of care was you know, sort of establish a mental health um, professional. Um, and I'd like to kind of talk about what my role is and what does the role of whoever's in my position and on any team ideally should be or could be. Um, so again, this is sort of about liminality. You know, my baby, if, if we're taking the most sort of um, middle of the road sort of establishment of a non-binary baby, um, parents want to know, you know, who is this child? Um, who will my baby be as an adult? Because of course, as parents, we have all these sort of projections and expectations of who our child's going to be. Um, so all of this stuff, what, when a parent hears this, whether it's in nursery or in your off, in your you know pediatric practice in the office, um, that they really are starting to recalibrate what their hopes and dreams are for their child, um, which is why they can't hear you when you're talking about um, you know that your child may be 46 XX but SRY positive. That just like doesn't compute. Um, so there's a lot of shame, loss, grief. Um, this is sort of a just a really quick diagram of what's going on for a family um, and or a teenager um, when they receive this diagnosis from, from you or from us or from anyone. So first of all, um, cognitive confusion is just really rampant, as you can imagine, after seeing Priya's slides. So a lot of times what we'll get is sort of a, wait, wait, what? What? What are, you, what are you talking about? So sometimes we have to go all the way back, which is difficult um, because some families aren't even familiar with what XX even means or what XY even means. Or, you know, we've had cases where sperm and egg are, you know, kind of understood, but mm, not so much. So as you can imagine, we have to do a lot of psychoeducation, a lot of education in general. So we know that cognitive confusion upon diagnosis with any condition um, is correlated with negative outcomes, both emotional and medical, if a family really doesn't understand what their job is um, medically. But especially emotionally, um, we know that um, we need to support um, the disclosure in developmentally appropriate stages, both for the child and for the family. Um, and this is kind of just a really brief schematic here of the process starting with confusion. Um, obviously disbelief, shock, what do you mean? You know, we, they told us we're having a girl. Who is this? What is going on? Um, then there's some shame. Um, and that sort of, the shame is not a, necessarily about, you know, we did this, but as parents, you always take on that 
um, responsibility for things that are happening that are out of your control. Um, often there's anger. Um, I see this a lot, you know, sort of anger at the universe, anger at us, um, anger at, you know, why didn't we know this sooner? Um, and then parents feel guilty, like, did I eat something? Did I do something? Did I, you know, I had sushi that one time, I had a glass of wine. No, you know, we have to kind of explain. It goes back to the cognitive confusion. If the more parents can understand where this is coming from, the more we can alleviate some of this stuff. And then of course there's grief. You know, if a, a family's finding out that their 15 year old daughter who they just learned doesn't have a uterus, that leads to all these, oh wait, so wait, that means she's not gonna have a baby. That means we're not gonna be grandparents. And it just goes around and around. So most parents, as you can imagine, need some time um, for this to really, um, I don't know, I always think about it just sort of like a vortex, which can either go sort of down or it can go up. Um, so that the, you just really need to be patient and supportive and give time. So this is about, um, this is just a quick diagram of disclosure. It used to be, as Priya said, it used to be that doctors wouldn't even tell families what was going on. They would say, tell your daughter that she has fill in the blank cancer. Tell her she has, she's having a bladder surgery. Tell her she's having, she has a, an ovary that's not quite right. Or some people used to say that their ovaries were twisted and they were taken out. Sometimes parents weren't even told what was going on, but they were usually ad admonished to not ever tell their children um, what had happened. So part of what I want to talk about today also is sort of the social aspect of this and the advocacy aspect where we definitely have um, patients who deserve to feel very wronged by us as the medical establishment. And we're certainly working to improve that. But there's a lot of people out there who have these wounds that um, just there's really no excuse for that. And we really don't want to continue recreating those wounds. So the idea here is that on the low disclosure side, um, and these are sort of quotes from parents, um, people feel like, you know, it's hard to have a child with something that I can't talk about. It's their, it's their genitals, it's private. Um, it's their business, it's their story. And on the other hand, the more that's sh sometimes the more that's shielded or the more that's shown to the child that it's a secret, um, the more shame that can generate. So on the other side, um, people think, hey, you know what, it's, it's how I was born or it's how our child was born. You know, we're sort of out there with it. There's no shame in it. And then there's a lot of most of most families are somewhere in the middle where it just doesn't quite feel right to be out there. Um, you know, like who's going to say, you know, our child has a, you know, clitorophallic structure. We're not quite sure. It's not differentiated. Like people don't do that. Um, and so, but what we want to do is we want to try to support them in clinic and in your offices about sort of normalizing that this is a spectrum. This is a continuum. There is a range. There are variations. Um, so, so in I really feel fortunate to be able to speak with you all, um, especially because I feel like the primary care aspect of this is sort of under discussed. Um, you know, a lot of you in primary care are going to be the first ones to sort of see some of this stuff. Um, so part of the reason for this talk is just so that you know that we're here, um, but that you can have a really, really important job right away, right off the bat um, in using language that's really going to be affirming and non-pathologizing and calming and reassuring, especially when the baby is medically stable. Obviously, salt wasting CH in the nursery, there's a problem, but, um, 
but otherwise, um, you know, you can, you can have such an amazing psychological impact right from the beginning. So I've met with lots and lots of families, both at our clinic and outside our clinic, who talk all the time about their first interaction with whichever physician they met with. And when it goes well, it's the family is literally on like a different trajectory from when it doesn't go well. So the, the language that we try to use is sort of, we talk about traits, um, we talk about this development being on a spectrum, we talk about, you know, the focus, like Priya said, you have an adorable baby, um, you know, baby's eating, baby's pooping, baby's sleeping, maybe. Um, that's great, you know, how are they letting you sleep? You know, really just focusing on the sort of the healthy aspects of the baby. Um, and, you know, but if you say like, well, you know, this, you know, this, your baby's genitals have a, you know, have a deformity or, you know, we're going to have to fix that, or this is abnormal. Like any of those words, even though that may be descriptively accurate is so jarring for parents that it really, really sets them off into that sort of negative vortex. Um, I'm going to zip through these because Priya covered a lot of this, but these are kind of the places in which people have been diagnosed um, with any of these conditions. And depending on what it is, is sort of correlated with when you would discover this, but um, it really predicts how you're going to be disclosing to the family or to the child. So prenatally, um, we're seeing more and more of this with more prenatal testing. Um, this didn't used to be as much of a thing, but I get lots of calls in my sort of volunteer work in the support group for people who have been prenatally diagnosed, um, maybe with, um, let's say, a girl, and then they get their, the genetics back from whatever screen they're having done and they see XY and they go, oh, I don't really get this, what's going on? Um, you know, I had a call like six months ago from a family in a very developed major metropolitan city um, where the, um, the physicians were saying, well, so prenatally we see in, on sonogram or ultrasound, we see female and then we see XY and you're at 16 weeks or 17 weeks and you have three weeks to decide if you want to keep this pregnancy. Uh, so that was six months ago. So there's really no medical emergency about it, but when you hear that from your physicians, of course you're going to think that it is. So I'm going to zip through these again because um, there's too much information here, but basically prenatally you want to really set the family up to get the care that they need where they need it. Um, and that's, you know, we're lucky to have that here, but it's not nationwide by any means. Um, but you really want to, again, just try to normalize what you can um, and support what you can. Um, connecting people right from the get-go with emotional support, whether that's their clergy or chaplain, peer groups, um, or, you know, and or psychoeducation. Um, birth and infancy is no different. This is all really kind of cumulative, but the idea that this is going to really put a stress on the family. So part of what I do also is I kind of look at the family system to see where are the vulnerabilities, you know, who's, who's in the home, what supports might they need, getting them connected to the various services that they might need. Um, and again, remembering that this takes time. So, you know, we get really excited when we can connect a family, but they may be, they may need some time to really wrap their heads around what's going on, figure out who they want to tell um, and figure out how they're going to interact with you. So, you know, we do have some people who are lost to follow up because they just kind of dig their heels in and they kind of, they kind of lean back and they need time, but maybe three or four years later, they'll come back. 
And that's where as primary care, if you see them in your office, you're gonna know that there's this condition um, and just support them along the way to until they are ready to access um, sort of the rest psychosocial supports. Um, again, so this part um, is probably where my role I think is really important, um, is helping parents explain this to their children in a developmentally appropriate way. So we'll get kids come in who are, you know, four and five and we're not talking to them about um, about their inner, you know, inner parts or outer parts, really, but we're talking to them about, you know, everybody's different, lots of way to have a family. Um, so I think about that as sort of planting seeds um, and really sort of assessing the family's ability to communicate this diagnosis in a developmentally appropriate way. And a lot of times parents are really nervous about that. So I just try to calm them down and say, you know what, we're going to, we're here, we're going to be here. We're gonna be with you every step of the way. There's books, there's you know videos. So we're just really trying to support them and supporting their kids. Cause we know, I mean, this is obvious, but that however they're doing emotionally really predicts the outcome of how the children are gonna be doing. This one's tough because um, you know, if you think you're a certain, your genetics are a certain thing and your external parts are a certain thing and you don't, you know, you get diagnosed with something at, at, in teenage, years, it's, you know, there's already so many crises of identity going on at that time anyway. Um, but this is a place where I think self-advocacy is really, really key and can be really, really healing. Um, so I put some brochures out front um, of an organization called Interact and Interact started out as a youth, um, sort of a psychodrama, drama group, um, advocacy group and they've really taken off and become their own established organization but one of the things that the teens and the youth do is they put out information so the one I put out front is called what we wish our doctors knew it looks like this um, and it's just voices it's just narrative from different different teens and young adults around the country who who just really wanted an opportunity to say this would have gone so much better if this or I really liked it when my physician did this um, so I just, I thought I'd just share that. Um, connecting them to other kids who are like them, even if the like them is this big umbrella, um, as you know, in previous slides, you saw that there's so many variations that, you know, there are definitely some that are more common than others, but it's, you know, it's just really helpful for these kids to know that they're not alone and for parents to know that they're not alone. Um, so for a parent, and this is true of any medical condition, and of course at CCMC, we already have these for other, other um, diagnoses, but connecting parents to other parents who've already walked that path is invaluable. That's probably the thing that parents talk about the most in terms of helping them get through some of these early days of the scary diagnostic period. Um, Often also they talk about meeting adults who have variations in sex development and how, how comforting that is to see people out there in the world surviving, thriving, because of course that's what we worry about with our kids. Um, education, collaboration with other medical fields, that's helpful for kids to sit and talk with doctors about you know, their experience. Um, mentoring for kids and parents of all ages. And as I said before, self-advocacy. So these are just a couple little icons. Um, Beautiful You is MRKH um, Foundation. Um, the AISDSD support group just changed their name yesterday to Interconnect, um, which you know they wanted to. It started off as Androgen Insensitivity Support Group, and then they broadened it to include all the variations that Priya mentioned. So they wanted to really they wanted to get the DSD out of there. So 
interconnect is kind of a cool name. Um, and AXYS is all different XY combinations, Kleinfelders, et cetera. Um, so that's the thing that I think I want to leave you with is that um, the peer support is something that as a social worker, as a therapist, I can't provide. As physicians, you can't provide, but people can provide that to each other. So that's really an important piece of um, the puzzle once the diagnosis is clear and once, once your job is complete. So that's it. Thank you. All right, so I'll just go over a little bit of some of the medical and uh, surgical things that uh, we think about in this clinic, pre-01 over, pre over two, and uh, by no means will be comprehensive because as you can imagine, uh, there are a lot of different approaches to this. Um, but uh, in terms of medical management, Priya talked a little bit about this. We think about steroids, mineral corticoids uh, in CAH and uh, talk about bone health and uh, calcium. Uh, a lot of times, uh, along with uh, Bonnie and Priya, we also talk about uh, optimizing healthy uh, food choices and wheat uh, because that uh, ends up being a, a, a large role of sort of uh, their development over time. Um, some, sometimes that can be uh, healthy, sometimes not, so we try to help with that. Uh, in terms of puberty, um, we, we talk frankly about this, you know, puberty is coming. Uh, this is what we can think about it um, and try to just answer some questions as kids come up. And then in uh, isolated cases, uh, Priya will uh, treat growth hormone deficiency or other things that may pop up. In terms of urology, um, there's a whole host of different syndromes that can have specific renal uh, implications. Um, and we'll refer to nephrology for syndromes with renal involvement, uh, renal uh, chronic kidney disease, things like that. Um, I find that there's a lot of bladder management in these children. And a lot of that can come from uh, the anatomical parts of things and also the social aspects. Uh, so for example, most of the conditions don't have a strong impact on voiding function or continence unless there's spinal cord abnormalities or uh, tether cords, things like that. Um, and hypospadia, certainly uh, we want to make sure that their voiding is uh, um, having good stream and there's no uh, obstruction and things like that. However, we find a lot of children tend to avoid using the bathroom. Uh, we tend to see uh, lots of voiding postponement in the restroom for fear of having someone else watch them void um, and potentially uh, just not wanting to be in a space that uh, could be vulnerable for a lot of these children. Um, so we actually end up spending a lot of time about that because uh, certainly um, postponement and uh, dysfunctional avoiding in the longer term can end up with uh, having um, impacts on uh, urinary tract infections um, and uh, even uh, upper tract changes such as hydronephrosis. Uh, in terms of testicular, for those who uh, have an affirmed male gender, uh, we do talk about self-exams and encourage them in this population. They're certainly an at-risk population. Um, that can be whether they've had an orchiopexy, uh, if they have a dysgenetic testis that's been biopsied, or they have partial androgen sensitivity. And I'll talk a little bit more about the risk of malignancy in some coming slides. Um, and then surveillance is something that's sort of a newer idea. Um, so for example, in uh, children who uh, identify as female and uh, have complete androgen sensitivity, uh, in the past, we uh, typically recommended gonadic to be either early on or after puberty. Um, and a lot of the, these children and patients are electing to retain their gonads. Um, and so there are different protocols, uh, whether it be MRI, ultrasound, and there's also been uh, gonadopexy that's been suggested to kind of bring them to the anterior abdominal wall. So we could visualize them and potentially uh, screen while maintaining the hormone um, function uh, from the uh, estrogen that, that uh, ends up being produced. 
In terms of sexual health, I think uh, Bonnie and Priya are uh, excellent at uh, helping this conversation along. Um, the things that I've noticed is uh, certainly um, we try to have an ongoing dialogue about this. Uh, are you happy with your current gender? Do you identify as one, the other, non-binary? Uh, and then it's important to, to separate that out from attraction uh, in the teenage years. We try to, to get the parents out of the room and, and have sort of one-on-one -on -one discussions with these kids um, and uh, just get a sense of how they're feeling today, uh, knowing full well that that may change. Uh, and they might not know. They might not, you know, they might be a, a less mature 12 year old as opposed to someone who's really thought about this. Um, in terms of uh, patient specific concerns, I think it's important to be very honest about what the current anatomy is. Um, you know, certainly uh, uh, kids grow up in this clinic and we try to be very honest about how, you know, their body is developing and what parts they have inside and, and what can happen. Uh, but sometimes they've been seeing us for years and they may have a, a strong uh, a belief that, you know, they could become pregnant uh, if they did this uh, or there's no way they could become pregnant because they had bladder surgery when they were younger. Um, as long as we're honest about these things, uh, I think what we want to do is empower kids to, to know, um, you know what we know about their diagnosis and uh, try to avoid things like you know, a patient we had a few years ago who thought they couldn't get pregnant um, and then ended up pregnant. <laughs> um, and certainly, if that's intended, that's great, but uh, just all about education um, because those things are, are higher risk um, and, uh, and we, we would hate to look back and say, we had this discussion, but we weren't communicating. Um, so I think that we've really improved on those things. And then the potential for spontaneous fertility. Um, most kids, uh, you know, are, are kind of putting their head in the sand when you think about sort of the future. Uh, but increasingly, as kids talk about these things, uh, they really do start to envision a future. And I think it's important to say, you know, this is what we know right now. Um, and, uh, and it's important to, to sort of be honest about these are the potential uh, in the future. In terms of fertility potential, it really does vary by um, the diagnosis and the syndrome. Uh, so it's hard to, to say one, one kid is going to be the same as the other. Um, but highest in uh, 46XX congenital, uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia in non-classical. And then uh, certainly we've seen that uh, girls with CAH have slightly smaller uterine volumes um, and uh, can carry pregnancies that do have an increased risk of obstetric uh, um, issues uh, such as uh, miscarriage and or early delivery. Uh, in 46XY uh, kids with CH, they have, uh, they're at risk for something called adrenal breast tumors, which can lead to obstruction, fibrosis, and difficulties um, with uh, infertility. And then there's case reports depending on the specific diagnosis. Um, in the future, I think there's going to be a lot of use of the uh, advanced reproductive techniques that's already being used. Um, and uh, we, um, we certainly can see uh, as the techniques evolve uh, that certain children uh, that previously we couldn't offer uh, services may, may be able to, to have uh, um, some fertility through this. And then cryopreservation of uh, gonadal tissue is uh, emerging. Um, we have uh, a, a protocol here for oncofertility that you'll hear more about in December when we talk about that at Grand Rounds uh, with the fertility and sexual health team. Um, but cryopreservation of gonadal tissue is something that uh, some centers have been able to uh, start. Uh, the question is just where that will go and, and uh, it's largely experimental uh, in a lot of uh, modes right now. In terms of malignancy, this is something we spend a lot of time talking with different uh, children about. Um, and uh, it does vary by the underlying genetic findings, uh, where the gonad happens to be, um, and what the genetic syndrome is. And it's 
difficult to know 100% because a lot of these uh, children previously would have on, undergone gonadectomy in early childhood. Um, so what we have is we have germ cell tumors in the non-DSD population that can inform some of the education to uh, our populations here. Um, and as we move forward with molecular genetic diagnosis uh, and imaging, there can be a little bit more information figuring out who might be at the highest risk. Um, and uh, the other thing to think about is that role of fertility preservation. Uh, in the past, I think there was less thought that this could potentially uh, cause uh, fertility in the future. And now there's much more of an emphasis on trying to maintain things um, and a lot of parents kind of thinking towards the future, we don't know what may happen in the next 20 years. When we think about malignancy, we kind of go down where are the um, gonad happens to be located, intra-abdominals, higher risk than externalized, um, the genetics of uh, certain syndromes, uh, the TSQI is on uh, the gonadal blastoma region, uh, and that can uh, confer a higher risk. Uh, in terms of, are there germ cells there? Um, we usually don't know this unless we've done a biopsy, but if there's truly no germ cells, uh, the risk of uh, malignancy is less. And then the age, as kids uh, increase in age, uh, there is a uh, higher risk for malignancy, and the prepubertal risk is uh, unknown, um, but the pubertal, there are reports of malignancy. And again, this is evolving as we have children uh, getting older who have actually maintained uh, their uh, um, gonads as opposed to had uh, gonadectomy. And this is just a slide that kind of goes over some of the higher risk versus the lower risk um, and uh, older patients uh, with surviving germ cell uh, with complete dysgenesis uh, represent the highest risk as opposed to uh, externalized uh, gonads uh, without surviving germ cells are a much lower risk. And then the other thing I wanted to point out is you have to know what you're looking for. Um, so normal imaging. Uh, we love our imaging and we think it provides some degree of uh, reassurance, um, but these are evolving uh, um, surveillance protocols. And uh, certainly uh, if you are expecting a streak or something uh, that may have become atrophic oversized and you see a normal, you know, godad or testicle in the abdomen, um, that could actually be an, an early uh, marker of something that's, uh, that's abnormal in terms of uh, potentially harboring a gonadoblastoma, just germinoma, or even a germ cell tumor. Um, so that's something that I think we struggle with when we talk to our families about uh, maintaining that balance between uh, this is something that is at risk um, and uh, what do we do about that. And again, I think that's where we have limited knowledge of if we were to biopsy everybody, we'd probably find some degree of, uh, you know, uh, CIS changes and um, we don't know how the progression is from that to uh, um, a full-blown something that's going to cause impact on health uh, versus something that's much more slow-growing. In terms of surgery, I'm not going to go over all the different surgeries because there's a lot. Um, in terms of uh, the urology perspective, um, gender reassignment was previously utilized in cases such as bladder extrophy, uh, aphalia, clinical extrophy, and severe um, 46XY. And uh, a lot of those patients did end up with uh, gender dysphoria, desire for transition, and we're better understanding the role of uh, androgen imprinting. Uh, the surgical approaches have changed dramatically, and we've really replaced that paternalistic uh, um, approach with shared decision making and an approach to try to um, incorporate multiple different views. We tried to balance future fertility, bodily autonomy with gonadal malignancy, hormonal function and fertility, and then optimize bladder and voiding dynamics. And the timing of a lot of these things is controversial. We try to avoid the buffet of surgery of we'll pick this and this without understanding uh, the implications of all of those things. And also uh, know that avoidance of uh, uh, intervention is a valid choice. And then within our clinic, we, we make it a point that we're not pro or anti-surgery. Even within the same family, we have children who've undergone one uh, procedure, no procedure, um, and really try to support the family in terms of what they feel is best for their child.
Uh, in terms of surgical management, uh, we end up doing a biopsy if there's question about uh, the underlying uh, um, uh, architecture of uh, the testis. Uh, if there is a um, testis in a gender affirmed male, we try to bring it down so that it can be examined, um, and in rare cases, orchiectomy. Um, and then uh, try to uh, biopsy if there's uncertainty as to what that represents. Gonadal biopsy, as I mentioned, uh, can, can be helpful, but also introduce some more questions. Um, and we, we just don't know the progression uh, in some of these populations. Uh, and I don't think it's ethical to biopsy everybody at certain intervals to, to determine that. So that's going to be something where multidisciplinary shared uh, information and prospective registries will be helpful. And then just in terms of surgical management, um, I will note uh, when we're being specific, it's nice to have the clitorophallic structure because it is uh, the most descriptive. But when you talk about the preferred versus non-preferred terms um, out of Northwestern, it's done a lot of this evidence. Uh, that's actually one of the non-preferred terms. So I think uh, we struggle with the terms uh, continually. Um, but uh, depending on the affirmed gender, um, there's uh, hypospadious repairs that can be done um, and uh, urogenital sinus mobilizations uh, to uh, um, help externalize structures. And then just in terms of a knowledge gap, um, Baskin uh, described the clitoral nerves in detail in 1999, um, which was not that long ago. Uh, so this can really inform our uh, um, surgical planning and uh, protection of such critical uh, structures. And then in terms of genitoplasty, this has uh, had some uh, press. Um, you know, we, we try to offer a, a variety of options and talk about uh, delaying things versus uh, um, in uh, Pippi Sally has talked about this corporal body nerve uh, sparing chloroplasty, which basically takes the um, corporal bodies and uh, buries them uh, laterally. So that uh, in theory, if the patient were to elect uh, a male gender in the future, um, this could in theory be reversible. Um, this is a newer idea. And then current challenges, the terminology is ever evolving. I think just when we kind of figure out that this is what, what was preferred, um, we talk to patients and patients living uh, in, in these conditions um, and find that perhaps things have changed. So I think that that uh, requires an ongoing dialogue to ensure that we're not inadvertently offending people or making uh, our clinic a place where they don't want to go because the terminology used is making them feel uncomfortable. Um, obviously, this is not that we can please everyone all the time, but I think it, it requires us to try um, and uh, really make it a, a place where people can get care um, and we can at least talk about the options. And then the long-term outcomes of current techniques and surveillance protocols are really unknown. Uh, so I think there's a call to report these things um, because uh, in, in certain countries there has been sort of an observational approach. Um, and I think that uh, we really need to, to report even if limited series right now until we can come together and uh, have a multi-site registry. And then just in conclusion, uh, multidisciplinary team is really the best way to, to take care of these complex patients uh, for all ages and variations. Um, and uh, we really do try to provide an open disclosure of the condition that's age appropriate and support for the family. Uh, because as Vani and Priya mentioned, this can be bewildering for, for parents to, to begin to grasp. And uh, if you were a teenager who was already dealing with all sorts of teenage uh, issues, to add this on top of it can be really overwhelming. Um, and then we try to uh, talk about observation and the risks and benefits of each approach and make the best decision for each patient. Um, and as such, uh, as we get more information, I think we're getting a little better at choosing, uh, you know, what might be the best uh, options, uh, but uh, that will be an ongoing, uh, ongoing process. So I think that's it. Thanks. Uh, one of the big problems you have is, is um, 
it's one of the big problems you have is is where do you make referrals and when do you make the referrals, particularly as a general pediatrician. Uh, my experience has been the diagnosis early on is happening more prenatally. Let's see the Turners or Feinfeld XY. If the every phenotypically everything looks normal, um, obviously you're going to confirm the diagnosis with karyotyping in the newborn nursery, but it comes back, confirms the diagnosis. How soon do you refer him? Do you refer him to this group? Or do you refer him to just the geneticist, who has oftentimes been involved prenatally? Um, or just, if, for example, in Turner's and everything looks fine, just want to friend him to the endocrinologist to see whether or not when they want to start growth hormone, something like that. Well, we'd like to see them right away, sir. <laughs> So I would say if there is this disconnect, say particularly between a prenatal karyotype or an expectation based on imaging or what have you, and then the way the infant looks when they're born, that family is already struggling. Right. So I think even from just the support piece alone, I think the multidisciplinary team has a lot to offer. So we'd like that referral directly to the group, yeah. I think my question is more is, is that they, it's, an, it's a turnus, they look like a nice young lady. It's a XXY, they look like a nice male. Is that something that we need to refer, we're gonna confirm the diagnosis, everything is going well. When do you think that referral needs to be made in a specific to you group or, or where would you refer it? That's an excellent question because there is controversy as to whether or not that needs the multidisciplinary team if it's straightforward Turner's or Klein-Felters versus more complicated variations. And it really, I would say, depends on the family as well. So if this is a family that your sense is they understand, it also depends on the understanding of the family and your feel of their understanding. They understand what, client, what Turner's is. And, and you get the sense that they are on board with disclosing that uh, with their child age appropriately. They've seen, say, an endocrinologist typically who also believes in ongoing disclosure and has supported them and they're doing well with that. Is it then necessary for every Turner's patient or every Kleinfelter's patient to see a multidisciplinary team? That's a great question because frankly, those services, we have to say, we don't have the, the bandwidth to see every 45X um, and every 46XXY. So I would say in those certain diagnoses, I think a lot depends on your feel for the family and how they're doing. I would say if there's any sense that the family's struggling with, wishes not to disclose those would be um, situations where they would benefit more from the multidisciplinary team versus just seeing endocrine. I rely a lot on my fellow colleagues to determine with their patients. For example, mild CH. Does every XX individual with mild CH, mild clitoral enlargement, need to see a multidisciplinary team? Not at all. We wouldn't have the bandwidth for it. So a lot of my colleagues will make that decision when they meet the family uh, to see how they're feeling. Family understands there's myocardial enlargement. They're aware of it. They're fine with it. Their child's aware of it. They don't need to necessarily see us. So I, I do uh, appreciate that there is this variability and flexibility with which ones you refer to, to us. So uh, our time is up, but I do want to thank the group for an outstanding presentation and uh, more importantly for the work that you're doing for for children that are coming through your, your doors in adolescence. It's really uh, it, you know, unique and, uh, and I just am so proud of what you're doing. So thank you very much and congratulations to your grand rounds.